Our gracious Heavenly Father, especially today when we remember the persecuted church, we are reminded of those who have bled so that we would be able to have your word, our Bibles, your revelation to us. And Lord, we are humbled by the fact that we have an opportunity to open up your holy scripture right now. And I pray that we may be filled with a holy sense of fear and trepidation and at the same time joy and exuberance for the fact that we have an opportunity to hear from you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would grant me clarity, accuracy, compassion, conviction, and that, Lord, we might be people who may be challenged to live differently today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're back in Colossians chapter 3. And this morning, we begin a series on the family, on the family. And the title of this morning's message, this is a kind of an introductory sermon to our series. It's titled, The Family Under Siege. The Family Under Siege. Let me read the words of Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. The Word of God says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. As I told you, the title of the message is The Family Under Siege. You know, over the course of human history, some of you who are history gurus know that there have been some horrific attacks in the history of the world. There was the sack of Rome by the Visigoths, for instance, in A.D. 410. The three-day siege was the first time in centuries that Rome had been sacked and invaded. There's the Battle of Trenton in 1776, where on Christmas night, General George Washington crossed crossed the icy Delaware River with some 2,400 Continental Army troops on an unexpected raid against German mercenaries garrisoned in Trenton, New Jersey. The Patriot forces caught the British-sponsored enemy completely off guard, and from that point on, the rebel army knew that the most professional army in the West could be beaten. There was also the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that maybe some of you may remember. In 1941, the morning assault by the Imperial Japanese Army on the U.S. naval base in Hawaii changed the shape of the already raging World War II, and it brought America into the war and completely, of course, changed the outcome of World War II. There was also the Six-Day War in 1967. On the morning of June 5th, Israeli planes surprise attacked the resting Egyptian Air Force, destroying hundreds of planes. On the ground, Israeli troops marched into the Sinai Peninsula in the Gaza Strip and attacked the Palestinians. And of course, we know that the rapid chain of events of that particular battle altered the landscape and the future of the Middle East and foreign policy around the world as we know it, especially in the last few decades. But as horrific 
as all of those attacks have been. None are greater than the attack in the last few decades in particular on God's institution of the family. God's institution of the family. More than ever before, beloved, God's design for marriage in the family is viciously being attacked on all fronts. Government, media, entertainment, and even within the church. There are pastors and churches that are abandoning God's beautiful design in the scriptures and buying into the popular culture worldview around us today and abandoning the word of God. One Christian author highlights the current crises and the breakdown of the family and of marriage. He writes, For the first time in history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family, made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children, has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options, which can no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships. The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family, with its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures, has to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes such things as human rights, self-fulfillment, and pragmatic utility on an individual and societal level. It can rightly be said that marriage and the family are institutions under siege in our world today, and that with marriage and the family, our very civilization is in crisis." I agree with him. You and I are well aware of the current crises. Many today are attacking the very foundation of marriage and what constitutes a family. Many today view marriage as an outdated, old-fashioned tradition, an old relic of the past. Today, young people more and more are being told and believing that marriage is a, is a parental tradition, a societal construct that has been passed down through over the generations, through the ages. And so now they must push back and they must be set free of the, of the bondage that is traditional marriage and home life. That the times are different. Today people fight for moral autonomy. They fight for freedom. They fight for worshiping the idol of pleasure outside of marriage and the family. And beloved, this rejection of, of the family and of marriage as God intended it and as God defined it leads to some devastating consequences. And mark it, they are consequences of our sin and of going against what the Word of God reveals concerning marriage and the family. They are consequences of our own sin. Just listen to some of the staggering statistics that are the result of God's design for marriage and family being rejected and abandoned or neglected. While the Bible says that marriage is a grace of life and a gift from God to be pursued and cherished, in the U.S., more than half of all couples have moved in together before getting married, committing fornication. The divorce rate for couples that live together first is significantly higher than those that, than those that do not. For women under the age of 30 in the U.S., more than half of all babies are born out of wedlock. The U.S. has the highest divorce rate in the entire world. While statistics vary, it is estimated that the current divorce rate is somewhere between 40 to 52% of marriages that end in divorce. 
This means that one in every two marriages will end in divorce, beloved. The marriage rate in the United States has fallen to an all-time low. As of 2013, it is sitting at a yearly rate of 6.8 marriages per 1,000 people. Think about that. The Bible says that fathers are responsible for training their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. But the fact is that approximately one out of every three children in the U.S. lives in a home without a father. And what does that lead to? Rebellion, drug addiction, alcoholism, adolescent suicides, and gang-related activity galore, especially in the inner cities because of fatherless homes. Close to 50% of high school students have intimate relationships outside of marriage. The U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the entire world. Twice as high as Canada, more than three times as much as France, and more than seven times as high as Japan. The Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, says the Word of God. Yet instead of cherishing children and training children, instead of being raised by parents, children are being raised by movies, television, video games. The average young American will spend, listen to this, 10,000 hours of playing video games before the age of 21. Who is educating our children? Our children a blessing? There are more than 3 million reports of child abuse in the U.S. every single year. The U.S. has the highest child abuse rate, death rate in the developed world. In a massacre that is almost unspeakable, almost 50, more than 56 million American babies have been slaughtered in this country since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. More than 56 million American babies. Let that sink in for a little bit. We have so much of people are yelling out for peace, peace, peace. What about all of the children that we've murdered in this country? What about that? Approximately 47% of the women that get an abortion each year in the United States have also had previous abortions. The number of American babies killed by abortion each year is roughly equal to the number of U.S. military deaths that have occurred in all of the wars that the United States have, have been involved in combined. Combined. About one-third of all American women will have an abortion by the age of 45. Beloved, whatever you think of the facts, take them with, with a grain of salt, and they're always changing. But they tell a story, don't, don't they? They tell a story that we have a major problem. Major problem. That we are in a major crisis. But more so, those stats are merely a symptom to a deeper problem. A spiritual problem, you see. More than, than a mere natural problem, we have a spiritual problem in our country. One pastor writes this, The current cultural crisis, however, is merely symptomatic of a deep-seated spiritual crisis that continues to gnaw at the foundations of our once-shared societal values. If God the Creator, in fact, as the Bible teaches, instituted marriage in the family, 
And if there is an evil being called Satan who wages war against God's creative purposes in this world, it should come as no surprise that the divine foundation of these institutions has come under massive attack in recent years. Ultimately, we human beings, whether we realize it or not, are involved in a cosmic spiritual conflict that pits God against Satan, with marriage and the family serving as a key arena in which spiritual and cultural battles are fought. If then the cultural crisis is symptomatic of an underlying spiritual crisis, the solution likewise must be spiritual, not merely cultural, end quote. You know what we need? We need to preach the gospel. We need to call people to repentance. That is the solution, beloved. To tell people about a Savior who's come to redeem them, through whom they can be forgiven of their sins if they would put their faith in Him, who can deliver them from these destructive things and from being a part of that one of those statistics. Only Jesus can deliver people from those things, you see. It's a spiritual crisis, and it must be confronted with the gospel. And this breakdown of God's beautiful design of marriage, of course, has led to massive, deadly consequences. One of the negative consequences of the erosion of the biblical traditional model is skyrocketing divorce rates, writes one theologian. He expands and says, The costs of divorce are troubling, not only for people involved, especially children, but also for society at large. While children may not show ill effects of the trauma of divorce in the short run, serious negative long-term consequences have been well documented. Sex outside of marriage, because it does not occur within the secure environment of an exclusive lifetime commitment, also exerts a heavy price from those who engage in adulterous or otherwise illicit sexual relationships. Teenage pregnancies and abortion are the most glaring examples. Homosexuality deprives children and households run by same-sex partners of primary role models of both, of both sexes and is unable to fulfill the procreative purposes that God intended for the marriage union. Gender role confusion, too, is an increasingly serious issue. Many men and women have lost the concept of what it means to be masculine or feminine. These few examples illustrate the disturbing fact that the price exacted by the world as a result of its abandonment of the biblical foundations for marriage and the family is severe indeed, end quote. I agree with him. I agree with him. And you would think that this problem would only be prevalent in our secular society, right? But beloved, I got to tell you, it's a problem in the Christian church as well. This undermining of marriage in the family. The statistics are are skyrocketing, of skyrocketing divorce rates. In Christian churches is almost as high as the secular world in certain contexts in our country. Where evangelicals or professing believers are almost just as popularly getting a divorce than as people who don't even profess to know Jesus Christ. Christians are reasoning That it is okay to leave your spouse if you have fallen out of love with them, whatever that means. Or if your spouse is not satisfying you as before, you can go to the next person who will satisfy you. And then after that, maybe they won't satisfy you, so you go to the next person. And on and on and on the cycle goes. Christians are buying into that type of mentality. Parents who are uninvolved in, in the church, in the lives of their kids is almost as, as common as so-called, uh, as people who don't even profess to know Jesus Christ. 
It is a huge crisis, beloved. No longer are many parents the loudest voice in the lives of their kids, but it's the culture around them that is the loudest voice. Men, brothers in the church who are not fulfilling their God-given role to lead in the home. Men are being passive, disengaged. Men are being more known in the church for complacency and idleness and lethargy, not leading their families. The feminization of our society has, has creeped into the church so that men are not no longer spiritual leaders, but spiritual wimps who have abdicated their responsibility to lead in the home and in the church. Amen? Come on, brothers. You and I are included in this. Women are buying into the feminist mindset that to be submissive, to be a submissive wife and a mother is an attack on their equality. That it is oppressive and condescending to say that women who are wives and mothers in the home, that that is a high calling, that is condescending. I've met women who, who in one way or another send forth the, the mindset that, they're, that they, they no longer consider it a, a, an amazing treasure to be a helper suitable to their husbands as unto the Lord. They no longer treasure the amazing call of being a, a wife and a mother, of, of leaving the, their mark on society and on future generations in the way that they invest into their children. Women more and more are buying into feministic thinking, beloved, in the church. In the church, a lot of women are discontent with simply being wives and mothers. Is this all that I'm good for? Is this everything that God has created me to do? There is a greater calling in life than being a wife and a mother. You know what it is? Being a child of God, a son or a daughter of the king, right? Finding your identity in Jesus Christ first and foremost. But after that, if God has called you to be a wife and a mother, then listen to me. This is your highest calling after being a daughter of the king. There are gracious exceptions from God, of course, singleness. But if you have been called to be a wife and a mother, it is the, God's highest calling for you and an absolute privilege and blessing. Don't listen to the culture around you that it has been feminized, Right? Or the feministic movement. So the church, designed by God to be a light in the world, designed to, to model what a loving family should be like, is terribly deficient, beloved. And Satan loves this, does he not? He's very happy. Satan knows that in order to undermine God's work in this world and the work of the gospel advancing, one of the best ways to do it is by undermining the most basic and fundamental institution in society, and that is the family. He knows this. It undermines the gospel. So we have a huge problem. A huge problem. But you know what is so comforting to me and encouraging? That the solution is gloriously and joyfully simple, is it not? It is. You know what, it, what the solution is? It is to return to what God says and obey it. To return to what God says about the family and about the home and obey what He says. 
We must be reminded of what God says about the family and marriage and, and parenting so that we're not shaped by our culture and the media and the government or, or by you and I and our own views about the family and marriage. We are to be driven by the Word of God. By the Word of God. So that's what this series is all about, beloved. About returning to the biblical principles that should be obeyed that, are, that God may be glorified as, as we as families are, um, are, are living for Him in accordance with His Word in our homes, and we experience the joy and the blessing and the, and the bliss and the wonderful, wonderful privilege that God has given us to be a part of a family. We can do that. Believers, Christians, can absolutely live and have a Christ-exalting home, Right? Colossians 3.18 and following, as we look at these um, verses in the weeks ahead, I want you to know and I want you to be reminded, beloved, of this. Because of the transforming power of the gospel in the life of the Christian, it is possible for you to lead your home husband and father. It is absolutely possible for you wives to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, to love your children with love and with patience. It is absolutely possible, children, for you to honor and obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Because of the transforming power of the gospel, we, beloved, can exalt Jesus Christ in the way that we live in our homes. Amen? We can. Now, we're going to be getting into chapter 3 and verse 18 next week. Okay? And specifically, zero in on wives. But this morning, I want to I lay down some groundwork for us. I told you this was a sort of introductory sermon exposing the problem. And I want to lay down some groundwork. You know, we won't feel the full weight of what God has called us to do in the home, our individual roles and responsibilities, unless we first understand that God himself, what God himself has designed from the very beginning. We need to see that. And so I invite you to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, go back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to lay some groundwork for the, 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 the series and these verses in the book of Colossians that are so rich, but we need to understand some, make some observations from these two chapters and then draw some implications for marriage and for the family from these, this text in particular in Genesis, okay? Now, you know Genesis chapter 1 deals with God's creation of the universe, And then, by the time you get to chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, we are told that man and woman were the crown, essentially, of God's creation. And both man and woman, verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, were made in God's image, in His image, which means at least two things. One, it means that we, as human beings, different than animals or any other creatures, resemble God in certain aspects. Such as, we are relational beings or creatures. We have personality. We have intellect. We have the ability to think. We have the ability to have emotions or to feel. Volitional abilities to make decisions. We resemble God in these aspects. Even with sin coming into the world, we are still made in the image of God. And thus the reason why murder is an absolute affront to God. No one has the right to take away a life, a human life. Because we are made in the image of God. We resemble God in certain aspects. But secondly, to be made in His image also has to do with our God-given right to rule and to take care of God's creation. 
God has, God from the very beginning, according to Genesis 1, 26 and following, has given man the responsibility to, to rule and to take care of his creation and to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which means to procreate and subdue the earth. That is God's purpose for men and for man and woman. So it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Now, Genesis 1 then gives the big picture purpose of God for man. And now Genesis 2 really expands upon this grand purpose and gets into the details or the specifics of of all the inner workings of that and how God designed for man and woman to pursue a common purpose of glorifying him by being the caretakers and rulers of his creation under God. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing as I was reflecting and meditating upon these verses to just be reminded again of the, of the wonderful call of God even in marriage and God's design in marriage to carry out His purpose for us here on this earth. Okay? Man and woman are to be joined in carrying out God's singular purpose in this world. And I want you to see this in chapter 2 and verse 15. Look at this. This is so interesting and captivating. Verse 15 says of chapter 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded this man, saying, the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So notice, in verse 15, man is given a responsibility. And that responsibility is to be the caretaker of his creation, and particularly in verse 15 of the Garden of Eden, to cultivate it and to keep it. And man is also then given a command in verse 16. He commands him, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. You have full freedom, Adam. How good and gracious of God to say, Full freedom, you can partake in benefit of the Garden of Eden, and everything that I've given you is for you. But with one restriction... Verse 17, you may not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there are consequences given to Adam, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And of course, we know that in chapter 3, the serpent says what? You surely shall not die. But did he suffer the consequences of his disobedience? Absolutely. So in verses 15 through 17, we have a responsibility given to the men. And we have a command given to the man with consequences if he disobeys the one restriction. Okay? Now, significant to this point is this. There is no woman here. No woman yet. The man is commanded to care for the Garden of Eden, to profit from the garden. The man is warned about disobedience. And by implication, later on, he's going to have to pass that on to Eve, who is to be born, right? Who's going to be created. But the man is the one who is commanded. He receives these instructions. And this is so beautiful. Because it seems as if everything would be complete at this point. He's been given his responsibilities. He's been, he's been warned within that command. But the man is incomplete. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not, what? Good It is not good or or beneficial for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. This is beautiful. Man doesn't recognize his need yet. God himself identifies man's need by saying it is not beneficial. It is not good for the man to be alone. 
Adam doesn't recognize that. It's God. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And what's interesting is that with this identification of God of man's need, you would think that he that verse 19 would, would talk now about God's design and fashioning of the woman. But it doesn't. You know what happens? God wants Adam to also recognize his need. And he's going to do so by virtue of a task that God gives him to name all of the animals in creation. And through that, as he is naming the animals, he is confronted with the nature, he has to contemplate the nature of these animals. And of course, he's going to come to the realization that no one corresponds to him. Look at verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man uh, gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And listen to this. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. See, God, through this exercise of giving him this task, through this task, Adam comes to realize his own need. As he names these animals, he's forced to consider their makeup and their their nature. No one matches Adam. And thus, in the middle of verse 20, you read these words, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. That word helper has the idea of, of support, of an assistant. That word suitable means someone who corresponds to him. Someone who who was his perfect match, if you will. His match couldn't be an animal. It couldn't be someone of the same gender or sex. No. But someone who was his equal, his perfect complement. Someone who was to be his perfect match. And so there's this beautiful realization of his incompleteness and his need And of course, having shown man his need, our gracious creator responds by providing for man, right? Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Notice who provides for him. Adam, this whole time, is doing what? He's asleep. This is not of Adam. He's asleep. God provides for him. God does it all, beloved. He performs a surgery. He causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. He takes one of his ribs, fashions. That word fashion there has the idea of a beautiful beautiful design. A good and gracious God beautifully designed and fashioned the woman specifically perfect for the man. And God brings her to the man, and listen to me, the first marriage instituted in verse 22. God is the one who does this. God is the divine actor in all of this. What is man's response in verse 23? Notice this. And the man said, of course, we don't know when, how how did he wake up? Did God wake him up? I'm sure he did, right? Sure. Adam, son, what do you think about this one? Right? The man says in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
These are the first recorded words in the Bible, beloved, by a human being. And you know what they were? A poem. A poem for a lady. Right? And as one pastor has said, this was the first poem ever written or recorded. And as it, uh, in, in, the sin, in the generations to follow, men have been writing poetry about women ever since. The first poem. And the Hebrew here is, is exuberant. She is part of me, taken from me, for me. The Hebrew poetry here in repetition is of, a, of an excited man. It's po- there are poetic words, not of condescension, but of exuberance, of praise and celebration. Listen, this is the happiest man on earth at that time. Well, he was the only man on earth, right? <laughs> He's a thankful man. He knows that God, a good God, has been good to him, right? He's given him a precious gift. He cherishes her. He treasures her. She is part of him. He knows it. He loves her. And then Moses in verse 24 gives us his own commentary. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Moses' point is, this is permanent. Permanent. By the way, later in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 5, Jesus um, alludes to some of these verses and attributes these words as coming from God himself. So there will be leaving and cleaving. That's where we get this principle in marriage of leaving and cleaving in marriage. It's according to verse 24 that you, you leave. You don't abandon your parents. But now the primary relationship will be your spouse, your wife, not your mom and dad anymore when you get married. And you're joined. And the idea of joined is cleaving or, or f- being fused together with somebody else. You're glued together with another person. You become one. You're one flesh. No longer two, but one flesh. And you're called to function that way and live that way in oneness with one another. And look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Perfect, unhindered disclosure. Perfect relationship. Perfect fellowship. Bliss, beauty, and harmony. Beloved, this is the first marriage They were both to work together to fulfill God's singular purpose here on this earth. And God brought them together. Now this was a rapid speed look at these verses, I know. But what implications can we glean about marriage and family from here that are going to provide a good groundwork for us in our series as we start looking at the the individual roles and responsibilities that we are to carry out for the glory of God in our families. What, is the, what are some principles that we can glean from, if you will? First of all, and I have six for you, and I managed to limit them to that because I had 11 or 12, okay? I'm sure you've already experienced Kempis Hernandez having way too much material up in this pulpit every Sunday morning. Forgive me for that. <laughs> Amen. Jim. I did limit it to six implications, okay? But I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, actually, I'm going to give you the other five to seven or eight in the sermons up ahead, so you're not going to get away with it, okay? I'll still bring them to bear. But I have six implications. First of all, marriage, as we look at these, this text and these verses, marriage is a divinely created institution. Marriage is a divinely created institution. God initiated marriage. God designed it. Look at the text in the again, beginning in verse 18. 
The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, a helper suitable for him. Look at verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he, the Lord God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Verse 22. The Lord God fashioned or specially designed into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And God brought her to the man. Who is the divine actor in all of this in the first marriage ever instituted, beloved? Who is it? God. God. Don't ever study the text of Scripture and miss repetition. Because the biblical author is trying to emphasize something. The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God did all of this. Irrespective of anything the man did, the Lord God instituted marriage. He did it. Marriage is not a man-made human institution. Man cannot do away with it in our culture today. And say it's outdated, it's old-fashioned, it's a man-made tradition from ancient times, different than ours. So we should abandon those old um, traditional things, such as marriage. marriage. Listen to me. Though cultures and peoples and societal structures may change, the one constant, unchanging God does not change and doesn't go back on His Word. Ever. God doesn't change. He instituted marriage, he created marriage, and he wants it to succeed and to flourish, beloved. That's what our God wants. So marriage is a divinely created institution not to be done away with by government officials or by anybody for that matter. God's word is clear about that. Secondly, marriage is complementarian. Marriage is complementarian. What do I mean by that? That marriage is a union between a man and a woman, both created equal, but yet with distinct or different roles, complementary roles. They are both called to live out, carry out God's singular purpose for them. They're equal in that, but they have different functions or roles or responsibilities within that. Marriage is complementarian. On the one hand, the, the woman is, is Adam's equal. Women are men's equal. They're made in the image of God according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. They are, they are beings or creatures who possess the same worth or value as men, if you will. No less equality. And yet on the other hand, they are different by divine design. I don't have to tell you this if you've been married for a while, right? That men and women are different, right? But opposites attract. And the longer you're married, the more you learn to appreciate your differences and leverage those beautiful differences to achieve a common purpose of glorifying God in your marriage. God knew exactly what he was doing. Ray Orland Jr. commenting on male and female equality writes this, Man and woman are equal in the sense that they bear God's image equally. They are equal but different by God's design. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction, and the wife is to lovingly follow, end quote. That's God's design. Listen, this is why sexual confusion and the removal of gender roles is utterly sinful. Utterly sinful. 
Because our maleness or our femaleness defines who we are and what role we're called to fulfill on this earth, beloved, to the glory of God. And so to make the choice to change who we are, and it's a choice, by the way, to make that choice and thus do away with God's unique purpose for making us male or female is an abomination and an affront to a holy God, and people need to repent of that sin. This is why homosexuality, lesbianism, transvesticism is a sin against God. This is why those who practice such things, the word of God says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet I'm here to to tell you that God, a loving, gracious God, can also forgive you of that sin as well. If you would bow your knee to the king and repent from that sin and your, your sinful nature itself. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of that sin as well. There's nothing that God can forgive you of. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So men are, and women have equal but complementary roles. And if you want to, to argue with this, take it up with God. Take it up with the Lord. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's why I'm here, right? I'm here to tell you what the scriptures say. That in direct contrast to what the world says... Marriage is between a man and a woman in a complementary, beautiful marriage. This is not an insult to women or a statement of of their inferiority whatsoever. Women are equal to men in every way, shape, or form, made in the image of God, just as gifted as men, in some ways a lot more gifted than some of us. I can attest to that with my wife, Andrea. There are strengths that she has that, frankly, beloved, I don't know what I would do without her. And vice versa, I'm sure she could tell you, but a lot less. Amen, brothers? Yes. And yet men are called to lead. To lead. And wives are called to follow. To follow lovingly. Not grudgingly, but joyfully from the heart. Thirdly, marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. Marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. What do I mean by that? That it's between one man and one woman. Nothing in the text or in the scriptures even suggests that God has ever intended for men to be with men or women to be with women. Nothing in the text or in the Bible suggests, even begins to suggest, that men and women can have multiple partners. God never condones or affirms fornication Sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, relations with the same sex, or polygamy, marriage with multiple people. God never, ever, ever affirms or condones that. No matter what our culture says. There are texts that describe patterns, but they are not texts that are are prescriptive, if you will, for our lives. Or that represent God's belief that some of these things are okay. They're descriptive of the times. Even during the times of the judges of God's wrath being poured upon the nation of Israel for their sins. Idolatry and injustice and such things as homosexuality and bestiality were condemned by the Lord. And they're condemned today, beloved. No matter what the media says, no matter what the government says, no matter what laws change. Fourth, marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. Look at verse 24. 
Moses' commentary, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and, the, and they shall become one flesh. They will be fused together. Adam and Eve were not two people anymore. They were one flesh. Jesus in Matthew 19, 6 says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He reminds the religious leader in that same text in Matthew 19, that same passage that from the beginning marriage was always designed to be permanent. Permanent. That it's for life. Beloved, marriage is a binding covenant before God. You understand what goes on in the marriage ceremonies that you, that you attend be, with two believers? Two human beings, you may be witnessing um, this marriage, but ultimately, you and I are just witnesses. It's ultimately before God, a covenant made before God, and He Himself puts a stamp of approval on it if it follows His Word. Marriage is a permanent covenant before God. This is why John Piper says this, Marriage is not about remaining in love. It is about keeping covenant. It is not about remaining in love. It is about keeping covenant. That's what it is first and foremost. And certainly you want bliss and joy and affections and emotions in the marriage. And we should strive for those things. But ultimately, when those things are not there, beloved, in hard times, remember that your, your wedding day, you made a covenant before God and there's no way out of it. No way out of it. So kids, youth, be careful who you choose. It's for life. It's for life. Oh, Pastor Campus, but I can't wait. I can't wait for marriage. I can't wait to start dating. Listen to me. Don't you want God's perfect gift at His right time? Don't you want what is best for, what is best for you? Doesn't he know in his infinite wisdom and goodness what is best for you? Wait for God. Don't settle for second best. Focus instead on being the right kind of person that will attract the right kind of person. Pursue Jesus knowing and loving and serving him. And God in his right time will bring that right person who's attracted to you because of those desires. That's why I was attracted to my wife, by the way. As beautiful and as gorgeous as she is to me. And has been for years. You know the first thing that I appreciated about my wife? Tw uh, what? 21 years ago now? 22 years ago? Were her desires. Her love for Jesus. The way that she sang to the Lord. That was the first thing. And physical. Young people, wait for God. Wait for God. Until he brings the right person. Because it's for life once you get married. Right? And for the rest of us, beloved, don't buy into the, the culture of unfaithfulness and a lack of commitment. I'm tired of hearing of people who complain that their spouse is not satisfying or fulfilling them. Listen to me. Your spouse was never, ever, ever, ever meant to fully satisfy you or fully fulfill you. Only one can do that. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He satisfies. He's the all-sufficient Savior and Redeemer and Lord. That kind of attitude of a lack of commitment will lead to problems in your marriage, if not already, or of ultimately breaking the covenant that you've made before God. Listen, we're living in an age of a lack of commitment, aren't we? It's a utilitarian society. 
Like it's manifested in, in basically we treating one another as objects. I'm tired of this pair of shoes. That pair of shoes looks better. We do that in the marriage. People abandoning the covenant before God to pursue after someone else that they think is going to satisfy them instead. Utilitarian. Until that person is useful to me. Until they, only as long as they satisfy me, will I stay with them. I've fallen out of love with them. What in the world does that mean? You have not fallen out of love. You've lost your mind is what you've done. Amen? Love is an action. Love is an action that looks to the, to the benefit of the other person. And emotions and affections are certainly part of it. But emotions, beloved, you know this in your marriages, are unstable, aren't they? They're not a good gauge of what is right many times because we get deceived by our emotions and our feelings. We have to be careful to be grounded in the truth and what God says. And often emotions will follow when you love your spouse selflessly and sacrificially. The affections and the emotions will follow. I can attest to that and I'm sure you guys can, right? We live in a society that is full of just wanting freedom. I want my independence. I want my freedom. Listen to me. The day that you got married, you lost your freedom. Right? Seriously. You don't have a right for privacy. Your life, husbands, and your lives, wives, is to be an open book to her. An open book to him. Full disclosure of everything. Internal thoughts and affections, priorities, money, property, children, everything. You're one. And you're called to function as one. Learn from this, young people. You are not ever autonomous or you're called to even now in your singleness to be living autonomously or to be living a secret private life where you reject authority and reject accountability. You know why? Because that is a terrible thing to cultivate for when you get married. Because when you get married, there is no autonomy. You belong to the other person, the other person belongs to you, and you both belong to who? To God. Right? Learn the lesson now. If you want to keep life private, single person or young person, then don't get married. All right? Marriage is a lifetime commitment where you lose all privacy. And that's good for us. Fifth, marriage is exclusive. Marriage is exclusive. Moses says in verse 24 that a man will leave his own family, that of his own parents, and will be joined to his wife. That idea of joining again is, is fused together, glued together. It's a beautiful picture of two lives coming together. They are now one flesh. They are one life almost. The sharing of all things between two people. The total giving of yourself for the good of another person. That's what marriage is. That's what marriage is. No one else should hold the same place that your spouse holds. Husbands and wives, listen to me. And myself included here. Your parents are not your priority. As precious and as important as your parents may be. Your parents are not your priority. Who's your priority first and foremost? Your spouse, that's right, your spouse, your kids, as precious and as cutesy as they may be right now, right? Not so much when they get older. 
as precious and as important as our kids may be, they are not the first priority. Who is our first priority? Our spouse, humanly speaking. That relationship if you're married. Your friends or your family members are not your first priority. Who is your first priority? Your spouses. Your spouses, your best friend, your, your closest confidant, your beautiful and precious companion for life in the sharing of all things together. Your spouse. Sixth, marriage is a blessing and a joy. A blessing and a joy. Notice in verse 23 that Adam didn't say in his famous poem, this is now burden of my burden and pain of my pains. Right? (laughs) Did he say that? No. Exuberant, happy. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. flesh. In other words, she's part of me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Exuberant words, joyful words. He was joyful. He cherished and treasured his wonderful gift from God. They were now partners, not rivals or enemies, right? Marriage is a blessing and a joy, beloved. And I'll give you some more of these in the Sundays to follow. Listen, the family is under siege. We have two competing different worldviews. The Bible says a man and his wife in an exclusive covenant relationship. The world says have as many partners as possible, acting as if you are married, polygamy. The Bible says marriage is for life, faithfulness and permanence in your marriage. The world says it is okay to commit adultery if you're not satisfied with them, because in the end, why would God want you unhappy? It is okay to divorce when you're sick and tired of your spouse. The Bible says the man and his wife will become one flesh in a heterosexual, monogamous relationship. The world says homosexuality is acceptable. Gender distinctions should be completely eliminated in a fair and free society. We've created a mess, haven't we? Our society has largely abandoned God's beautiful design for marriage and the home as revealed in the Bible, beloved. And may it never be the case that the church of Christ does the same thing. That is my biggest burden as a pastor as I look at our evangelical landscape. That the church doesn't abandon the truth in these crucial areas and undermine the gospel in the process. The solution is to return to God's word and what he says, beloved, that we may be blessed by God, that we may experience his blessing. And this is why the the gospel is so important, even in Colossians, as we get into the, the, the roles of wives and husbands and children and fathers and so forth. It's so important because the gospel, beloved, breaks the power of sin so that you don't become one of those statistics. The gospel brings hope, does it not? Deliverance from hell and judgment. And that Jesus paid the wrath of God upon the cross for our sins. But it also breaks the power of sin over life so that we are faithful in our home. So that men lead and women follow lovingly. Their husbands. And that we parent in a way that honors the Lord in accordance with biblical principles. The gospel solves the problem of sin, beloved, and gives hope. And Colossians 3 is all about the great change that God has brought to us and made in us. So that now we're called to live differently in our pursuit of Christ and in our particular roles where we're at in life. That is true, by the way, if you're a single person as well. To exalt Christ in your singleness. 
if you're now grandparents, to affirm the family and the lives of your kids and, and the next generation of grandchildren, to affirm those beautiful things so that the next generation does know the Lord, not like the Israelites who didn't pass on the truth to the next generation and they didn't know God. Now as grandparents, you have that opportunity to do that. So because of the gospel, because of the gospel, wives can submit. Husbands can love or love their wives as Christ loves the church. Children can obey. And fathers, certainly, and mothers can raise up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, your word is so clear. You are not ambiguous or vague. Help us not to be deceived by the present world in which we live. Help us not to fear men, the opinions of men, whether it be government, politics, media. Help us to return to your word, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds in accordance with your word and your divine design for our families. Lord, help us to live these truths out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.